Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Celluloid Junkies, the last episode of season 2. I'm Luke Kane and I am joined by my stalwart co-host Damien Heath. Hello there, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, glad to be here for the last episode of season 2. As much as we love doing this show, it's a lot of work, so I think we're both looking forward to a bit of a break. Got a great film as well. This month we are taking to the highways of Florida with Patty Jenkins' 2003 biographical crime drama, Monster. When I was little, I had a lot of dreams. And I was always secretly looking for who was going to discover me. Was it this guy? Or maybe this one? You never knew. I lived that way for a long, long time. Dreaming like that. But one day, it just stopped. I'm kind of broke right now. So I'm just trying to make like some cash somehow. Well, maybe I can help you out. By the time I met Selby Wall, all I wanted was a beer. Can I buy you that drink? I got my own money. I'm just trying to talk to someone. Do you want to stay with me? Who was that person? She was just a friend I made. I think she was a straight person. Hey, lady love, you need a ride? Can I ask you a question? Are you a prostitute? Hey, man, don't go too far. I just want a little privacy. 30 straight up. You girls, you know, I love them and I hate them. Where'd you get this car? I just borrowed it. Life is funny. It's also strange how things can be so different than you think. Are you okay? I got everything going for me. I'm not a bad person. I'm a real good person. Police urge anyone with any information about these crimes to contact your local authorities. Lee, killed that man. What do you think? You're never going to understand it, so you got to trust me. I got it under control, man. She's all screwed up. I was raped and Peter was gonna get killed. You can't kill people. Says who? And you. No. Tell me. This is your deal. They're coming for us. They got nothing. They're not even looking. There's a whole world of people killing and raping, but I am the only one killing them. People like me and you go down every day. The thing no one ever realized about me was that I could train myself into anything. July 2001. Californian-based AFI film student Patty Jenkins is looking to make her first feature but she needs a subject she can sell to a studio. Over a casual chat, Brad Wyman, a colleague, mentions that serial killer movies are bankable right now and are going into production very fast. Jenkins remembers toying with the idea of making a movie about Aileen Warrenos, the Florida-based prostitute currently on death row for multiple murder. Wyman tells her she should go for it. By 2001, Warrenos is an iconographic figure in popular culture. Erroneously touted by the media as the first female serial killer, her murderous rampage was foreshadowed by a wretched upbringing that included parental abandonment, abuse, neglect, starvation, homelessness, addiction, and rape. She's one of the most recognisable ghouls of the 21st century, a frightening yet tragic creation of a morally decayed society. 
convicted of shooting dead and robbing seven men while soliciting along the Floridian highways. The prosecution's case rested largely on testimony given by Lee's lover-turned-state witness Tyra Moore, who guilted Warrenos into confessing to the murders over a series of phone calls recorded by police. It was this betrayal, which played out during Warrenos' emotionally charged trial, that first captured Jenkins' imagination. Jenkins writes to Warrenos in prison, and tells her about her intention to adapt her story for the big screen. They begin a volatile correspondence that lasts several months. The night before her execution, Warrenos will ask her childhood friend Dawn Botkins to grant Jenkins access to all of her letters and artwork. Wyman introduces Jenkins to some money men, but they are interested in turning the Warrenos story into an exploitative movie of the week. Jenkins' ambitions are loftier. She declines these offers and asks Wyman to produce the film himself. One evening, she catches the Devil's Advocate on television and is captivated by the young blonde actress in it, Charlize Theron. In her gut, she knows that Theron could play Warrenos, but she will ultimately audition over 50 actresses for the part. After an exhausting research process, Jenkins writes her screenplay over seven weeks and sends it to Theron's agent. Theron has never heard of Aileen Warrenos, but she loves the script and meets with Jenkins two days later. Jenkins reassures Theron that the film will not exploit the lesbian sex killer angle and signs on as lead actress and producer. One week after Theron commits to the part, Warrenos is executed via lethal injection, and the two will never meet. Jenkins' screenplay is now generating considerable buzz amongst Hollywood insiders, and Theron's involvement strengthens their position creatively. Christina Ricci signs up to play Taria Moore, Warrenos' parasitic girlfriend, but the character's name is changed to Selby. Lawyers insist that under no circumstances can Warrenos' on-screen girlfriend resemble the real Taria Moore, who is liable to sue. Jenkins raises the $5 million budget and the 28-day shoot begins on the 4th of February 2003 in Florida. To play Eileen, Theron gains weight, shaves off her eyebrows, wears makeup to age her skin, prosthetic dentures and contacts to darken her eyes. She studies Nick Broomfield's documentaries on Warrenos to capture her mannerisms and speech patterns. Many of the bars and woodlands in the area are actual places Warrenos frequented, and some of the extras who actually knew Warrenos have a hard time looking Theron in the eye. So uncanny is her resemblance to the convicted killer. By the time shooting wraps, Jenkins has racked up $80,000 in credit card debt. After a smooth editing process, the film is screened at the AFI Film Festival. New Market Films acquires distribution rights and the film premieres in the US on the 17th of December 2003. The movie becomes one of the most hotly anticipated of the season, largely due to Theron's unnervingly cogent performance and remarkable physical transformation. The director comes under fire for her decidedly sympathetic portrait of a convicted killer. She tells the media that she hopes the families of Warrenos' victims will never see the film. Dawn Botkins, Warrenos' only close friend, sees it and lends her endorsement. Lee would have loved it, she tells Jenkins. The film is a financial success, grossing $65 million worldwide, and Theron walks away with the 2004 Best Actress Oscar. Without any further ado, let's get into Monster. So, Damien, <laughs> tell me about your first experience with Monster. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, we both saw Monster independently of each other. I saw it because you told me to see it. Right. Okay. I, I 
couldn't remember if we saw it t- uh, together or independently of each other. I thought we'd seen it ourselves and then we kind of uh, embraced it when we were together. So this film holds a lot of emotional cachet for me and it probably does for you. And I have a lot of very fond memories of it. I think it's a very well-made film with um, a lot of things that we love, which are great performances. In fact, one of the best of the last couple of decades, a strong female character and a serial killer. So it's a marriage of some things that we find very easy to love. So it was uh, it was kind of fate that we were going to fall in love with this movie. And it goes without saying that uh, Charlize Theron's performance is the biggest takeaway from this film. She's absolutely phenomenal. I was talking to you previously that it's one of the two best female performances since 2000 or of that decade in my book. And the other one is Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream. I think while Christina Ricci is nowhere near as affecting as Theron, I don't think she's I don't think she's meant to be, but I think she's ultimately very good here. And during the 90s, she'd been in a whole bunch of really excellent films, including The Addams Family, which you love, as well as The Ice Storm and The Opposite of Sex. She had Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. And then Monster came along at a time when she was doing some of her best work, mostly in low-budget independent films. And it was around this time that she was also in The Laramie Project about Matthew Shepard's horrifying murder and Prozac Nation. And following this film, she had a very memorable role in Black Snake Moan. So she was an actress that was doing some very daring work some sexualized and provocative work and often queer-centric work. And I think her involvement was just another reason that we were drawn to this film. I think that we also both have a huge love of true crime movies and shows. Um, So this is right up our alley in that respect as well. And it's definitely one of the best examples of a true crime story adapted for the screen. It's intense and unrelenting in both its language and its violence, a lot of which is very confronting and a lot of it is close to home for an LGBT audience. And yet, at times, this film is also really beautiful in its depiction of humanity. I I know it's going to come up at some point during this podcast, so I will admit there's a bit of lifetime, midday movie um, kind of tackiness to the delivery of the film. But I believe, very firmly believe, that the film overcomes these deficiencies with the truth of, truth of its script and its performances. I remember uh, when Monster came out, and I remember the buzz that was around it. And one thing that I heard about it, because I, I think I'd just turned 18 or 19, and I didn't have a lot of experience with really adult films. I kept hearing about this rape scene in it. And rape scenes just put me off. Like, I, I'm scared to see a film that has a, a rape of a woman. I don't, I don't like to watch them. And so I didn't watch it. Even though I was sort of interested, I just didn't watch it. And then we were together, and I think it must have been, maybe would have been within a couple of years of us being together that you said you have to see it. And so I watched it with you. I loved it. I was just devastated by it. The rape scene that I was frightened of, I I was right to be frightened because that's the most unpleasant moment in the film. That's a really hard moment. And you never really, I don't think you ever really get over that after that happens. the rest It permeates the rest of the film and everything else that happens. But what surprised me about it was that it was a love story. What draws you into the film is the juxtaposition of Selby's world colliding with Lee's world. It's sort of like middle-class suburbia colliding with somebody who was born on a roadside, and you just want to know what is going to happen here. You know, it's the tension of those two worlds coming together that's really fascinating at first. It's one of these doomsday character studies. So the character here does not shape her own destiny. Destiny shapes the character, and that's true from the first frame. There's this sense of fatalism about it, that this is only going to ever go one way. 
set against Lee's optimistic voiceovers, which demonstrate an almost comical lack of self-awareness. It's really moving to see someone who you can see. I mean, even their their complexion. You know, Selby's got this pure white alabaster skin and Charlize Theron just looks like leather. I think the the idea that Lee has these notions that she's going to have this white picket fence and this family and her, her ambitions are so humble and modest and, you know, ordinary, but we can see her and we can see that that's not in her destiny. It's not in her future, but she can't see that. And that's what's truly touching about Monster and about watching this character for me. When they first meet in the bar, I think that's a really interesting scene because at first you've got Aileen who's going to be such a uh, physical character throughout this whole movie. She's a she's a big person. She commits uh, murders. She uses her body for sex. And yet it's uh, Selby who approaches her and kind of pushes her to sit with her and have some drinks with her and then go home with her. It's only in that scene that this kind of stuff happens because I feel like Aileen needs to be coerced into doing some of this stuff, needs to be forced to do this. She looks, uh, and obviously she reacts at one point, just... Homophobic. Well, yeah, not not even just that, but she's she's timid in her response to Selby at this point. And then those roles are going to be reversed at one point and it's not going to be Selby chasing Lee, it's going to be Lee chasing Selby for the rest of the movie. Yeah. But that first scene is really interesting how it's a different... It sets it up differently than it's going to continue going. So I guess that's one way that you're drawn into feeling sorry for Aileen because she's kind of drawn into this relationship that she was going to walk away from at the start of the movie. And both characters enter into that scene kind of fledgling. Selby is in a situation where her family are trying to get her to go straight and narrow. They're trying to fight off the lesbian thing. And Lee has just come from wanting to kill herself, but she wants to spend her last five bucks because otherwise she blew a guy for free. So they both enter that pub with absolutely nothing to lose and where their life are teetering on at a crossroads, and they both just hang on to each other. They become each other's way forward. Okay, suddenly there's a future, but it's only with each other at this point. And that's another reason why you're just so compelled by the romance. What's interesting is that Selby is is an awful character, really. She's very weak and parasitic and kind of has her head in the sand, and she's just this whiny, sulky thing. And she uses Lee. Yeah, she's a user, yeah. And really, we shouldn't be rooting for the relationship, but we do. And I think that that's because of the performances and, and the writing. But you don't you don't so much... I, I don't feel you root for the relationship, but you root for Aileen to get something out of life. Mm. And uh, she's put all of her stock in the relationship, so that's what you have to root for. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I don't think you're rooting for it for Selby. Because for Lee, you know, her only real chance of happiness is with Selby. Mm. So in that sense, you root for the relationship. Yes, but only... On behalf of Aileen. When the physical trouble came along, let, let her clean the streets, and but, then we'll pull her in. But That's how come why. there was so much physical trouble? In just, it, because it was all in one year. Seven people in one oh, year. Oh, well. Oh, well. But why not say now? Because I'm out of retaliation for taking my life like this and getting rich off it all these years in, in total pathological lying. Yeah, thanks a lot. I lost my fucking life because of it. Couldn't even get a fair trial. Couldn't even get a fair investigation or nothing. Couldn't even have my appeals right. 
You sabotaged my ass, society, and the cops, and the system. A raped woman got executed. It was used for books and movies and shit. Bladder climbs, re-election, everything else. I got fifth finger in all your faces, thanks a lot. You're inhuman, you're an inhumane bunch of fucking living bastards and bitches, and you're gonna get your asses nuked in the end. And pretty soon it's coming. 2019, a rock's supposed to hit you anyhow, you're all gonna get nuked. So, you know, obviously Monster was predated by two Nick Broomfield documentaries, which both of us saw and loved. Uh, the Selling of a Serial Killer in 92, which was, I think, about a year or two years after her initial arrest. Mm. And then The Life and Death of a Serial Killer, which was um, the year that she was executed, 2003. No, she was, uh, yeah, yeah. So she was executed 2002, wasn't she? And two very different movies. Uh... Yeah, well, I rewatched them for this podcast. I've always loved them. I think they're brilliant. So the first film really is, a, it follows Steve, who was Warren Oses' original lawyer, and he's just this buffoon. And Arlene, who's this sort of sappy-headed Christian woman who legally adopted Eileen. And they act as a go-between for Warren Oates to try and bulk the, the filmmaker out of $25,000 for an interview. They're essentially just trying to profit off of Warren Oates' crimes. It also explores how Warren Oates' arrest was compromised by law enforcement and her lover, who were caught brokering deals to sell the rights to her story to a film production company. And then The Life and Death of a Serial Killer covers what Nick went through in 1992, but it also takes a deeper look into Eileen's background. It traces the different places where she came from and everything. One thing we really need to talk about from the get-go is that this is based on a true story, but it caused a lot of controversy at the time because of the looseness with which Patty Jenkins dealt with some of the facts of Lee's life, and also that it took a very subjective look. It was... Monster is, is, I think, the way Lee would have her life story be told, but it might not necessarily be the truth of her life. We'll disagree a little bit later. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is I think the documentaries are more sympathetic to Warren Oates than the film Monster is. Yeah. She's surrounded by parasitic lawyers, governors who are building their re-election campaigns on her death, and money-hungry Christians looking to make a buck. So Warren Oates emerges as the only truth-telling one of the bunch. She looks practically heroic next to these slimy disgusting people who are around her which is pretty incredible considering that she's murdered murdered seven or eight seven men seven people yeah that we know of in cold blood she was she was convicted for seven deaths was she convicted for seven or was she convicted for six because one body was never found that's right i think so yeah she has a weird kind of charisma she talks straight, she makes up words, she's got all of those mannerisms that you see Charlie's Theron do with, you know, the, the moving of the head to get the hair back, and uh, she's got those nuts eyes that open up, and her eyes look just completely black. It's uncanny to see uh, the real Aileen Warnos and then to see Charlie's Theron as Aileen Warnos. It is, it is just honestly one of the most amazing transformations. I mean, there are still movies today that come out that are based on real people that are nowhere near as uh, accurate in their physical depiction of someone. Yeah. And for someone who has so many little physical characteristics like Aileen, to, it, it just seems like so much harder to get all of that correct, and yet it's been done. Even though she was touted as the first female serial killer, which wasn't true, 
but she is definitely an aberration. It's not something that we see often, and she wasn't a thrill-kill kind of killer. She she killed to rob, and she killed basically as a means of survival. Or, it wasn't, or in self-defence, depending on who you believe. It's interesting that most serial killers get feel empowered by their crimes, you know, afterwards, and they relive them and everything. Lee Warrenos seemed to be, at least in the way that she's portrayed in Monster, she was diminished by every crime. You know, she grew weaker. And uh, what's interesting about the real Aileen Warrenos is that she had a kill kit. She didn't have a bag labelled kill kit. No, that's She might have had a few things that she took out to assist her in the (laughs) clean-up of the crime scene. Yes, and also when they... Just regular household products that I assume a lot of our listeners carry around in their cars or purses. And she had a storage facility. When police went in there, she indeed did have trophies from all of her victims. She had things like fishing poles and stuff like that that she'd taken from all of their cars. So she did fit the profile of a serial killer, but not in a standard way. A lot of this stuff is semantics. Like, to say someone has trophies from their kill, a trophy is an ear that you keep. A fishing rod that somebody who's poor and has no money steals is potentially a meal that they're going to sell at some point. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So I I feel like, yeah, you can make a case that this fits a typical serial killer profile. She took trophies from her victims and she cleaned, she had a kill kit, which, but it's, you use that language, it sounds like it. If you use a different kind of language, it sounds like, hey, this is just a normal person doing normal, not, well, not normal things, obviously very abnormal things, but there is a reason, a, a reason of survival behind each of these things. And I know I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm really sympathetic to Aileen Warnos, and I probably am in a sense. But at the same time, I, I just, there's a language that you use that, not you particularly, but, you know, crime, true crime documentaries and such, there's a language that's used which indicts or convicts someone based on the language that they're using uh, whereas if you used a different language, you'd tell the same story, but without that prejudice. That's true, and I agree. I'm probably going to be a little bit more objective about Warrenos, because, uh, only because I am reluctant not to be, because this is someone who ultimately did go out and murder people. And, yeah, I, and, and you have looked at uh, more. You've read Sue Russell's book, Lethal Intent, uh, you have looked at more documentaries. You've looked at more sides of the story than I have. I've yeah. seen the two documentaries. I've uh, watched the film Monster many times. And that's about the extent of my knowledge of Aileen Warnos. And, you know, I, I'm not without sympathy for her. You listen to what happened to this woman in her life, and it is horrifying. And a lot of that the film doesn't go into. Mm-hmm. I ultimately think it was a really good choice of the filmmaker not to include it to just focus on this one period where the killings began. Our viewing of Monster is definitely informed or it's in sync with the documentaries. They're great companion pieces. Yeah, they are. If you'd seen the documentaries and you went, oh, wow, I wish they turned this into a movie. Well, they did. Here's Monster. Yeah, (laughs) and it's a great movie. Sue Russell is an award-winning journalist and author of Lethal Intent, a comprehensive account of the crimes of Aileen Warrenos. In 2004, she wrote an article for the Washington Post, More of a Monster Than Hollywood Could Picture, 
which questioned the veracity of Warnos' depiction in the film as a victim of circumstance and the ethical ramifications of such a choice. We were so pleased that she agreed to speak with us. Thank you again so much for agreeing to speak with me. It's very early for you, isn't it? It is, yes. It's just just coming up 6.30. Yeah, you know, that's the joys of youth. You don't mind about getting up early. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I was so stunned when you agreed. I, I didn't think I would ever get to speak with you, so thank you very much. Well, I guess the first thing I'm wondering is is what what initially drew you to to Aileen Warrenos or to tell that story? Just so you know, we call her Eileen. Eileen, thank you. Yeah, and or and or Lee, which was the name that Tyria used for her. Basically, once the news broke that day on the television, I just was so stunned because it was such a rarity that it really just seemed like a no-brainer to pursue it. I'd really wanted to do a crime book. I'd done a lot of crime stories, articles, I should say, literally including people on death row, the dingo uh, lady who Meryl Streep played in A Cry in the Dark. I'd Lindy Chamberlain? several times. Lindy Chamberlain. Yes, I'd interviewed her several times, and I'm sure you know of her being an Australian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'd done... A lot of crime-related girl gangs and uh, kids living on the streets and just coming close to the perimeter of doing a book. I wanted to do a book and I wanted to do a crime book, but what was going to sort of pull me in? And this pulled me in because it was such an unusual topic and if indeed it was true and she had committed all these crimes, it was a rarity, if not, you know, unique. There's debate about unique, but there's no real debate about the fact it was a rarity. I decided, you know, I had to get on a plane and go out there and see what's going on, and that's what happened. And what was it like once you got there? A bit of a zoo initially. There were quite a lot of press in those first days, but it died off very quickly, surprisingly so. In fact, I spent a lot of time mulling over with a couple of people who were there why it was such thin press coverage and we almost came to the conclusion that men couldn't face the fact that there might be a woman out there doing this you know (laughs) that it was hard for them to tolerate and so therefore there was almost a built-in repugnance if you will and and they didn't want to deal with it and so they didn't and there were a few diehard reporters from the local Florida newspapers especially and a couple of TV stations who were there, if not every day. The newspaper people had a few people there every day. Television had a couple of cameras. But for the most part, there were very few of us after the initial thing. I was surprised. I thought it would have more solid coverage ongoing because it was such a dramatic story. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was just the fact that because it was a woman, it was something that wasn't palatable to to men and therefore I, spe- I suppose not reported as much. Yeah, I mean, I thought maybe they couldn't tolerate the thought that especially those who might have considered picking up a woman on the highway, they would be vulnerable in a situation like that. I mean, I, you know, I think one of the core issues with this story was that 
But you've got to remember, Luke, this is now, where are we, 1989, 1990, the murders. It's a long time ago, and times were very different, and people did hitchhike they, they did and you know i know my own father in england if he saw a woman on the side of the road her car appeared to be broken down I, I know my dad he would have stopped and said what's happened you know do you need a hand and he would have given them a hand or he would have driven them to the nearest petrol station or got a mechanic or changed a wheel or something this is long before we lived in the paranoid world we now do. So it wasn't so unusual then to have men try to help a woman in distress. And Eileen had her little shtick worked out quite well. She had a picture of kids. She said they were her kids and they were back at the motel waiting for her to get back. She had to get back, had to make them dinner, etc. And she'd present this to them guys she flagged down. The whole idea was that they would sort of take pity on her and give her a ride. And of course, once she got in the car with them, then out would come the proposition for sex, which was met with mixed results depending on the guys involved, you know. There's a bit of a fallacy that the victims of Eileen Moranos were all soliciting her. And that wasn't the case. Yes. When, when you read your book, you see that it no. was more, more complicated than that. It is more complicated. It was more complicated and it was a bit of a fallacy. And she had it quite well worked out. She travelled with what she used to refer to as her kill bag. She had a gun in it. She had a bottle of Windex. And when she did commit a murder, I don't know if she used it any other time, but she would clean down the car pretty darn thoroughly. I've spoken to police officers who said, you couldn't see a mark on it. Now, who goes around with a bottle of Windex, you know, if they're just um, minding their own business and not doing anything nefarious? So I personally think that she figured out which guys she was going to go after. She somehow ascertained which guys had a fair amount of money on them. And those may have been men who were heading home for the weekend with their paycheck. It may have been men who were heading up to Daytona Beach, the party town, you know, and we're going to have a good time. But eventually I was able to ascertain that most of these guys probably had at least three or $400, maybe as much as $600. There were one or two we weren't sure about. But, you know, I think that she probably questioned them in such a way. I don't know what she said to them, but somehow she figured, okay, this is a good mark and I'm going to go after it. And those were the people she targeted. And I, I think that's really what it came down to. It was interesting. I saw um, in a documentary on Eileen in which you were one of the featured guests, you acknowledged that she did have a terrible upbringing but that that was no excuse for what she did, that there was people who'd had just as terrible upbringings and had yeah. gone the other way. And I still believe, you know, that's true. And we see that with males too. One of the things that has continued to bug me about this story is the way that nobody cares what happened to a, ma a male serial killer. I'm one of them, by the way. <laughs> but nobody much cares what happened to a male serial killer when he was a little boy. But 
they care a lot about Eileen, and you, what you get is a lot of people showing great sympathy for her, and, uh, you know, she had no other choice. She had no opportunity to have a different life. This was the only path she could have taken, etc. Not really. I mean, that's not really true. There was a gender bias thing going on that I found really quite intriguing, given the way male serial killers are treated and the way Eileen was treated, along with the few other females we know of, you know, at the time. That's the way it was. There was a, there was a difference there. And it wasn't the worst childhood in the world. When I talked to Arlene Frawley, who adopted her for mysterious reasons, strange reasons, not mysterious, that sounds nefarious, I don't know that it was, but mysterious reasons, you know, religious woman, etc., spent a lot of time with her. She told me that Eileen was made to eat a baked potato that had been thrown in the trash in the kitchen and that that was, you know, terrible abuse. Well, you and I know much, much worse goes on in terms of abuse. So I don't know how badly she was abused, but I do know she had a rotten childhood. She was screamed at, shouted, given the belt. She was thrown out in the fields, essentially. There were woods near the house, and she was sort of tossed out there and told to just, you know, get out of the house. And so the kids had built a fort, which... I don't know what you would call it in Australia. I'm not even sure what we would call it in England, but it was they took bits of wood and planking and stuff and made themselves a little hideaway, and they'd go and sit in there because it's freezing cold. I mean, Michigan in the winter is bloody cold. She was part of this, and it was, that was terrible for her because the other kids were... They would participate in these kissing games and... She was always on the sidelines. No one wanted to kiss her. No one wanted to cuddle her. They would accept sex from her. They would buy sex from her for a packet of cigarettes or some beer or whatever. So that must have been terribly painful to her, we have to assume. But I don't think that you would ever have found her with cigarette burns on her, for example, or some of the marks that people who work in child welfare would probably associate with child abuse. So my co-host Damien has just walked in. Do you mind if he if he sits in and asks you a question? No. Hi, Damien. Hello. How are you going, Sue? Thanks again for joining us. You're welcome. Um, nice to hear two Aussie voices in one day. That's nice. <laughs> I hope you have no problems deciphering what we're saying. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Especially so early in the morning, uh, which is why I've walked in a little bit late. Just on the creative process, at what point did lethal intent start occurring for you during this whole process? And, uh, you know, was that something that you were approached about doing that, about turning this into a book? Or was that something that you approached somebody about? As I said, I initially went over to Florida to sniff around and see what was going on. And I wrote a book proposal. It initially went to a couple of publishers, and one of them was Virgin in London. And Virgin England and Australia were the first out with this book. The American publisher, which should have been out very early, dragged its heels and did not bring out the book, could not understand why. That's a whole other story I won't bore you with. But it was a very difficult time for me because financially nearly clobbered me because I had a good contract with them and then they started misbehaving, let's put it that way. 
But meanwhile, the book came out in England and Australia and did well, which made it harder for the Americans to drag their heels indefinitely. On the other hand, I had several lawyers and nobody could get any satisfaction from them. So eventually, years went by, which is hard to believe, and then a woman I knew, Linda Connor, who was an editor at Red Book magazine, I'd known her a long time actually, went into the agenting business. And when I talked to her, I told her what I'd been doing, and, and I said, you've done this book, and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, what about an American publisher? And I said, well, oh, funny you should mention that. See, what had to happen is once the American publisher did not bring it out, I was not at liberty to do anything else with mm. it until they had released it formally back to me. I had to get the copyright back in my hot little hands. Linda was able to accomplish that in a matter of weeks, whereas these lawyers had not accomplished it in, in a couple of years or a few years. So as soon as she got the rights back, she then went off and sold it to Kensington in short order, and they changed the title to Lethal Intent. It was the same book, but with, you know, an addendum covering Eileen's years on death row. They are the same book, but literally down to the punctuation, grammar and spelling. It's all the British, oh. original British version. And what year was this? Oh, God, you would ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how long I, after Australia and the UK was this? When it, when it came out here in America? Yeah. I'm looking at Lethal Intent now. It says 2002. This is published by Kensington, Pinnacle Books, Kensington Publishing Corporation. That's almost a decade then. Yeah, I mean, it was just an unbelievable journey. And so I put it in the epilogue. I was just looking at it. Los Angeles, December 2001. Eileen Warner says occupied a death row cell. That confining space that Stephen Glazer paced out in the Ocala courtroom since 1992. And mm. the, on it goes. And, you know, that was my epilogue in 2002. And at that time, execution was on the horizon, but hadn't happened. I think it was the same year that Charlize Theron won her Oscar for Monster. I think it was very close in time. If my husband was nearby, he would know. <laughs> Ken? <laughs> he, he seems to remember it better than I do. I think I've blotted it out. When, when you uh, write a book like this, and obviously it becomes, I guess, such a comprehensive account of that particular series of incidents and that person, how much does that affect uh, your life as a writer? A lot. It was... It I was... mean, obviously a lot, because we're here in 2018 interviewing you on a podcast about this. I, I could never have predicted that we would be talking about it at this stage so many years later. Who could predict it? <laughs> Most of my friends who write crime books, you know, they might get a little blip here and there. But I was telling Luke before you came in, I've had like five requests in the last month. She took on a kind of iconic status... And what I kind of foresaw happening and did happen to some extent was that women got behind her. I was a little afraid of that. Not that I don't begrudge, I didn't begrudge Eileen's support she got, but I did think it was awfully unfair on the victims' families and the victims that they were all treated as though they were rapists and violent killers 
whereas she was actually the one who did the killing. Um, mm. Let's not forget, she was the one who took their lives. It's such a strange, aberrant case. The fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was a prostitute, the fact that uh, she, in her initial trial, gave a very, very graphic, detailed account of being raped by her first victim. Well, you know, what you have to remember is this. When she was interviewed by two police officers in what we call her confession tape, which was a three-hour interview with investigator Larry Horsapo, who worked the Richard Mallory case, and Bruce Munster, who worked a couple of the cases, she did not accuse Mallory of rape or of abuse of brutality. She didn't mention being brutalised. It really wasn't until after, I guess, it came up in appeal. Did all this come out? It was so bizarre. We all sat with our mouths hanging open because there had been no mention of any of this prior to that. But there were other things that didn't make sense about it, okay? She made it sound as though, and the movie, by the way, and this was why I got cross with the movie, the movie made it look as though he raped her and tied her up and brutalised her. In actual fact, what happened was she got off the first shot into his right arm, which here in the States means he was in the driver's seat. He was found with his tri trousers done up, his belt done up. That was the first bullet. There were four. He got out of the car and sort of staggered. She got out of the passenger seat and ran around the front of the car and said, you know, no, you don't move, you don't move. This is by her own admission, by the way. And she then pumped three more bullets into him. And ultimately, it was the two in the lung that were fatal. And the first bullet kind of went from one side through the shoulder on into the lung. So it was one of those situations where the bullet makes a journey that's doubly damaging, you know. So it was a very different scenario that... Being behind the wheel of a car, what you've got that bears that out is you've got blood on the back of the car seat. Now, the scenario painted in Monster didn't match that at all. I haven't watched Monster in a long time, but I know when I first saw it, I was like, what? What am I watching here? <laughs> this makes no sense. So if you look at Monster, you'll see a very different scenario. Okay, so let's just assume, for example that he did rape her the way she claimed. Who do you know that is raped and brutalised and is bloodied and bleeding from her orifices, vagina and anus, as she described when she finally took the witness stand, and who then stops to take his money? The victim would get out of town fast. You wouldn't linger and start pulling around with his clothes. That didn't make sense. The possessions that she buried of his, that she hid behind his car, the fact she went off in his car and dumped it somewhere and close behind it she put the vodka bottle, the glasses they'd been drinking from and various of his possessions and eventually his possessions into a storage locker. The stories just didn't match up. It illustrates a level-headedness that you wouldn't think that somebody who'd just been brutally attacked would possess. <laughs> right. And if you watch that scene in Monster again, you'll say, no way she would have done that. Eileen claimed she was tied to the steering wheel with 
leads from stereo speakers. That didn't work either because, you know, strange though it may sound, we reporters do sometimes do some strange things. And <laughs> I actually started, you know, getting in my car and fiddling about with my position and seeing with my hands held to the steering wheel, could I wriggle into such a position where I could be raped like that? And the answer was no. You can try it for yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that you know? like a fun experiment. <laughs> we'll do it after the interview. <laughs> Larry Horzapa of pressuring her into saying stuff before the tape went on. Well, in actual fact, on the confession tape, you can hear the confession begin on tape. You know it's just beginning from the way he carefully worded it to make sure there was no question of this very issue. Wanted it very clear. This is the beginning of our discussion with Eileen Warnos. And it is very clear in the confession. She did search Richard Mallory's pockets and she got the keys and she took his truck and off she went and she threw cardboard over him and a bit of old carpet and left him there in the woods where he would have been pecked by the birds had he been there long enough. But in the trial, what was very important, people always ask me, well, how come they were asked, allowed to ask her about all those other cases? There's a law called commonly known as similar fact evidence, and the judge decided that the cases were similar enough that he was going to let them all in. And in that confession tape, which was very hard for them to edit, and you guys know this because you're editing tapes all the time, it was very hard for them to edit it so that they could get through what they wanted to get through. But she admitted that she was pissed off at Dick Humphreys who she shot seven times because he was gurgling and would not die. Richard Mallory took, I think it was 10 to 20 minutes to die after the four bullets went into him. She claimed she killed Richard Mallory because he didn't want to take his pants off. He wanted sex without his pants off. That was her first claim in the confession. This is before a year later claiming he attacked her. Didn't want to take his pants off, thought he might not pay her, did pay her, but thought he might ask for the money back. So you see, we've got two quite different versions, one year apart. Eileen's sympathisers love to point out that Richard Mallory had served time for, yes. ag I think it was aggravated rape? Eventually I got the records. It took me a long time, but I did put it in the book. It was 1958. He was a married, acne-plagued 19-year-old just a few days shy of induction into the army and very stressed out at the time. His crime was breaking into a woman's home and trying to assault her. When she resisted, he fled immediately. He pled insanity and was convicted of housebreaking with the intent to commit rape and assault and sentenced to four years in a Maryland psychiatric facility. Now, when he was there... A doctor examined him and found he had poor control of his sexual impulses and he had strong urges to have relations with different women despite having a, a wife, etc. And he was diagnosed with, I quote, personality pattern disturbance, comma, schizoid personality, end quote, and he was deemed a, in quotes, defective delinquent, end quote, 
and confined to the Patuxent institution. He told the psychiatrist he had no hope for the future, nothing to live for, no use to anybody, he thought his wife would be better off if he were dead. He had a job at the institution for a while. He backslid a bit in 1960 after making a molesting gesture. This is the wording from the report that I got. A molesting gesture towards the charged nurse with sexual intent, end quote. I don't know what that means. You don't know what it means. It could mean two fingers and fuck off, right? Yeah. Early in 1961, he escaped from the institution but was port and returned there very quickly. The staff thought he was quite unstable emotionally. Now, this is where I take issue with Michelle Gillan's date line. The papers and documentation I got said, and I know this for a fact because although I don't have them in front of me, I know I have them and had them and got them, and it took me a long time to get them. I wrote, Richard Mallory was finally released in 1962 and in April 1968 was found by the circuit court for the Montgomery County Maryland to be, in quotes, completely relieved of the status of defective delinquent. Now, here's where I take issue with datelines. We know he was convicted and sentenced to four years. In April 68, he was found, he was completely relieved of that status of defective delinquent. What we don't know is what happened in between. How do we know that he didn't serve 58 to 62 behind bars there? and then perhaps go on probation. I've never heard Michelle Gillan say or Dateline say that they have the records that show that he was behind bars for 10 years. And yet that's the impression that is given by, well, let's just say by Dateline. <laughs> and I don't know where that comes from. Maybe they have documents I don't. And if you were talking to them, I'd say, get hold of them. And, you know, I'd love to see them. Mm. But, you know, it's an interesting point because think about it. He sees this woman through the window. He goes through an unlocked door. Oh, I, I don't know if he saw her through the window this second time. He went upstairs. She was in the shower. She screamed. He ran out the front door, and that was that. But he was arrested, of course, sentenced to four years. Terrible crime going into a woman's house when she's in the shower. Nobody's denying that. But I don't know that it would get 10 years. Rapists don't get 10 years half the time here now. <laughs> that's true and it's such right? a yeah absolutely and it's such a um condemnatory uh comment little remark he served 10 years for aggravated rape you telling us laying it out like that shows that it was nothing like that we don't know we, we don't, don't know mm. i can't say for sure that i know but i can say what the report said and the report said he was sentenced to four years and that in 68 his record was cleared now, remember, he was young. The offence, he was 19. That's not that young, but it's not that old either. I just don't know. I don't know. But I'm not willing to call him a rapist based on that and say, sir, 10 years. Mm. What do you think? No. And also what's interesting is in the you know 20 or 25 years that you know we're in between that and him coming encountering Eileen Wuornos, by all accounts, he was a a fairly stable, consistent person. He'd picked up prostitutes before and there hadn't been any, any problems. He owed money. I mean, he was behind with his bills. I have been heard to say he didn't do anything else. And people say to me, that you know of. And I say, okay, fair enough. That <laughs> I know of. That's true. 
that I know of. But there's nothing else on his record. That much we do know. I mean, Sue, I mean, this is probably a really impossible question to answer, but why do you think that Eileen went from years of hitchhiking and hooking to to turning like quite suddenly into a killer. She was diagnosed more than once as a borderline personality disorder. She had other diagnoses, and one of the things about borderlines is fear of abandonment. If you pick up a book about borderline personality disorder, you'll see fear of abandonment is their biggest fear. I believe that when she met Tyria, she thought she'd got a mate for life. And she was so afraid of losing Ty that she did everything in her power to keep her. So I started to plot out the dates, and it was very, very interesting. Richard Mallory was murdered within a few days of Thanksgiving in 1989. In 1989, Sandy Russell, no relation to me, went over for Thanksgiving dinner in their trailer. And Sandy was a very pretty young blonde, straight, worked at the motel with Ty. And Eileen, I think, was very threatened by her. And she went out, she murdered Mallory, she came home, she had money. She said, you know, look, we can go to Disneyland. Look, we can do this. Look, we can do that. Suddenly she had megabucks, okay? She had thwarted the growing likelihood that Ty might go back to her home state. She had basically kind of hooked her into her life again. So then we fast forward again to the next summer. Now, during the six weeks that Ty's sister was with her, Eileen killed three men. She came home waving dollar bills around. We heard this from the girls waving dollar bills around and saying, look, I've got money, look, we can go party, look, we can pay the back rent, look, we can do this, look, we can do that. Again, she was very afraid that the sister was going to drag Ty back to Ohio with her. She missed her. They all missed Ty. Ty was a great gal. She was funny. Mum wasn't that great because she turned her back on murder, but she was fun. (laughs) And she was frightened to death that she was going to drag her home with her. She killed three men in six weeks. Now, that is incredible acceleration, even for a male serial killer. You know, if you look at the timeline, and I had a big timeline on my wall, much like I'm sure the FBI does when they're doing their plotting, and you look at the locations, and you look at what was going on in their lives, and I just started to put two and two together, and it all began to make sense that, These were times in her life when she felt under extra threat and she had to do anything she could to stop that happening. Here's one thing I do want to point out. I will take issue with Ty's claims, which she's made countless times, that she was afraid of Eileen. She wasn't afraid of Eileen. She went back to Ohio for Thanksgiving, during which time Eileen killed someone else. I think it was Walter Gino Antonio. And then came back down to Florida. Now, if she's that afraid, why did she come back? Yes. No, it sounds like that might have been a convenient excuse as to why she yes. didn't report the crime or that she knew about the crime. Right. There's a bunch of stuff there that's a bit off. I talked to Robert Ressler. He's unfortunately now deceased, who was one of the first profilers who set up the Behavioural Science Unit at the FBI. 
And he said, you know, if there are more like Eileen, then we have to, re you know, throw out the books and rewrite the whole profiling business because there are no others like Eileen. But look at her this way. And we're probably getting near the end, so i just throw this in at you. But look at her this way. If you think of her more as a robber who killed, which is what the prosecution argued and what I can quite see being viable, then it does make more sense. She's not so much out on a limb doing something that nobody else had ever done. She was a robber who killed, and there are robbers who kill. Mm. So she robbed her prey, she took their stuff, and then she left them because, as she said herself in the three-hour confession tape, I didn't want to leave behind any witnesses. That's not a quote, but those were the words, you know. I mean, one of the things that certainly separates her is that she didn't seem to take much of a thrill out of the act of killing. That, as you say, it was sort of just like a practical necessity in order to rob them and not leave behind any witnesses. And in that sense, she's separated from Ted Bundy's and Jeffrey Dahmer's, who were far more involved in the act of killing. I agree with you. I mean, we ne we'll never know for sure. Mm. And I did look into studies that I think one was done in Australia that I mentioned in the book, maybe. But anyway, they try, they've tried to study, you know, women's level, levels of arousal when they're committing acts of violence. I mean, there was a, a woman in the U.S. called Carla Faye Tucker who admitted having an orgasm when she killed someone with an axe. And there are some pretty brutal crimes out there. But, yeah, I, in, in, basically I agree with you. that That's the difference, the main difference, yeah. Sue, I won't keep you much longer. You've already been so generous with your time. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions, if I could, about the movie. Is that all right? We'll give it a go. I mean, you wrote a, you wrote a wonderful article in the Washington Post about, about the film and about the choice to make that first rape or the first murder scene, a self-defense scene with rape and how graphic and awful it was. So I'm just wondering, obviously, when you first saw the film, it must have just been very different from uh, the, uh, other people who, who hadn't researched the case as thoroughly as you had. Were you able to lose yourself in it or were you sitting there just thinking, well, that isn't right and that isn't right? I lost my mind in it. <laughs> 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 no, I didn't lose myself in it, no. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't lose myself in it because I knew some of the people, I knew some of the survivors, I knew some of the family members. Uh, some of them were still phoning me. I mean, I had one young woman calling me three years after the trial, mm. at three in the morning. You know, there, there were all kinds of things going on. It was very hard for me to get past it because of the suffering that I saw. You know, Shirley Humphreys is a good example. She's died of cancer since the, since all this. So Dick, of course, was murdered. And seeing her in court every day, I can't describe to you the look on her face. Letha Prater, the sister of Troy Burris, again, the look on her face. Those will never leave me. I'm still in touch with Letha. I spoke to her a week or two ago for about an hour, and we're close. We'll always be close. We're bonded by this tragedy. So... No, I couldn't detach myself. So your article, I suppose in a way you were advocating for them, weren't you? Yeah, I've never been able to stop advocating for them, Luke, because I feel somebody has to, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And it is something that's missing not only from Monster, but from many, many different pieces of media that are about Eileen. You know, there's so much fascination around her and there's so little spoken about the actual victims of the crime. Right. 
Right, exactly. Seems really wrong. It is really wrong, and I just feel very bad for them. And, you know, I do what I can when I can, which is basically to, you know, chat on the phone and make sure when TV people contact me, I will say, well, have you called this one? Have you called that one? And keep their presences alive as much as possible. Keep their memories alive. Thank you so much for speaking with me and being part of the show. You're welcome. I'm out of here. Are you sure? Get your fucking hands off me, you dumb dyke. I'm not gonna fuck you for fucking beer, okay? Stop wasting your fucking time. I wasn't trying to fuck you. I just wanted to talk to you, and I thought that if I bought you some beer, maybe you'd talk to me. Let's talk a little bit about Monster in relationship to other successful true crime films Mm. that have been turned into a narrative. Films like Zodiac and Snowtown are probably two really memorable good ones. I'm going to put aside the whole TV movie, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer sort of movie of the week stuff, mm. and I'm talking about serious yeah. serious films about killers. What do you think are the, the key ingredients that make these films or that separate these films? Well, speaking about those three films specifically, Monster and Zodiac and Snowtown, they're really interesting choices that you've made there to compare those three movies, they all deal with similar subjects, but they're also very different films, completely different in tone. Zodiac, first and foremost, is a big, glossy film. And in fact, David Fincher needs to kind of intentionally make his film look down and dirty and gritty to achieve that effect. Whereas with the other two films, Snowtown and Monster, it comes far more naturally and it's probably hugely due to budget. But it's not to say that Zodiac is any less successful because it's my favourite David Finch film and I think it's utterly brilliant. And there's some sequences in that that are more nerve-wracking than anything in Monster for me. Purely probably because it's done as a thriller, so more in the vein of something like Silence of the Lambs than Monster is done. And on the other hand, I think Snowtown is really just distinctly Australian. And I think the great Australian films all have a style of their own that Hollywood has been unable or possibly unwilling to replicate. And that style is just, it's slow, it's lyrical, it's meditative. Films where you're forced to comprehend human nature through an emotional lens, rather than it being beaten into your consciousness. So Snowtown, in that respect, is a lot like films like Picnic at Hanging Rock, or Somersault, or Wake in Fright, or Walkabout, or Hounds of Love from last year. They're all kind of waking nightmares, is how I would describe them. And it doesn't pass judgment, and it probably doesn't care if the audience passes judgment or not either. And I think that's the difference between Snowtown and Australian films like that and Hollywood films. All three of those movies are really as equally as successful as one another in a critical context. They're three of the best examples of the true crime genre. Monster's a lot more successful than most other serial killer true crime films. Uh, It has a heart, which those other two films also have. Uh, This isn't a a she did this, then she did that, and then she was caught kind of film. It plums the depths of despair that she feels, the loneliness, the terrible circumstance. And then it also reaches for those epic heights of, of love and acceptance and understanding. And it does both of those disparate ends of the spectrum with an honesty and caring that's usually missing from those kinds of movies. I'm talking there where you're comparing it to films like Dharma and Helter Skelter and Bundy. Because those direct-to-video abortions are the primary examples of this genre. Uh, there's not a lot that comes out that goes to the, the cinema. I mean, what, what's your comparison between those three films? 
Because well, you love all three films as well, don't you? I do, yes. And I think probably the biggest difference between them is perspective. So obviously Monster is very subjectively on Lee Warnos' experience or the killer's experience. Zodiac is on the investigator's experience. And Snowtown is on the experience of a simple-minded boy who's associated with the killers and he's sort of our key in to see what's happening. That's really what separates them. The other thing is that Zodiac feels very focused and directed in what it wants to say, and Monster's the same. Whereas Snowtown feels like there's more breadth, there's more space, there's more patience. It's less clear about what it's trying to make you feel. I mean, wouldn't you say that that's an Australian thing? Yeah, I think you said it beautifully, that idea of there being a waking kind of horror. Mm. The film doesn't have a particular interest in in setting your mind one way or another. You kind of walk out of Snowtown, Hounds of Love, and even dramas like Little Fish and Somersault with a feeling that the movie has left it up to you. Mm. You will walk away with whatever you walk away with. Mm. Are you a prostitute? Yeah. Why, man? I don't know. People like pay to be with you. It's wild. Men must just line up to be with a girl like you. I guess. Monster works less as a record of what happened with the real crime than it does as a really emotionally cogent, lucid, interesting character study. I don't know how much value it has as a depiction of these tr- of this true crime story because it, it really does make some very, very clear decisions about how it's going to tell this story, regardless of, of how accurate it is. And, you know, whether or not Lee Warrenos was raped in that initial murder and it was self-defence, if you take that out of the film, then there's no reason to have any sympathy for her. Well, that's right. And and the whole film uh, relies a lot on the the sympathy that you feel for Aileen is, relies on that scene. Yeah. I watch it as a film about a character and she's a very, very interesting, sad, tortured, fascinating, complicated character who I love to watch. Mm. They've put the based on a true story thing on there because it essentially does tell the essence of the story and get at the essence of the character. But they've also done that because the film is going to be far more marketable if they say based on a true story and sell it as the Lee Warreno story. And so finally she got to be in the movies as well. Because that's the first line of the movie. Yeah, I love that. I love the dramatic irony of that. It's uh, similar. There's another film that we've done on our podcast, which starts with, I always wanted to be... Do you know what it is? I always wanted to be a gangster. Very good. <laughs> good fellas. There's a specific set of problems that come with true crime films. And when you ask about that, I- I'm guessing that probably you're referencing foremost the inability for most of them to be completely accurate. And that's not necessarily true crime films. That's also any film based on life. I do suppose that this may be a problem that's encountered in a lot of movies. um, But I also, on the other hand, believe in the value of artistic license. The biggest example in Monster, (laughs) I think, is uh, Selby, the portrayal of Selby, um, who in real life, as you said, was Tyria or Tyra Moore. And she was about twice as large, redhead, loudmouthed, and just... Toothless. Generally a horrible looking person, as opposed to Christina Ricci, who's not. Not only that, but her and Eileen had lived together for almost two years prior to the first murder that Warnos committed. 
there's little doubt then that Tyria Moore was far more complicit in her knowledge of the crimes than we're led to believe that Selby is, at least in the beginning of this movie. A two-hour movie which shows uh, focuses largely on Warnos would have made the audience disdainful of a bit more disdainful of Shelby if it had been shown uh, accurately. Obviously, for litigation purposes, they couldn't show it accurately. So I have really no problem with that change. She's just kind of a supporting character in this story anyway, but it definitely does make us a little bit more sympathetic to Warnos. What's interesting, because obviously the film is quite subjective, but even the casting of Christina Ricci is a subjective choice. Jenkins uh, said she didn't want to cast someone who looked more like Tyria, a toothless butch lesbian, for two reasons. One, she was worried that two oddballs would make the film look a little campy, like a little wiggy and a little campy. And two, she wanted Lee's girlfriend to look less as she really did and more like Lee's idealised view of her. So she, she wanted to make her look cute and innocent and sexy, which is how Lee thought of Tyria, even though Tyria wasn't on the surface any of those things. A couple of times it moves away from Moronos and gives us some non-subjective scenes. So the examples of this are when Selby tells her aunt that she's moving in with Lee. And then there's another scene which I find especially jarring, which is where the witnesses to the car accident help police sketch the suspects. That scene could have been dropped. Well, I think both could have been yeah. dropped. I mean, I, I don't mind the scenes with Selby, and it does give us a little bit more sympathy for her, which the film's desperately in need of, because she's unlikable for a lot of the film. Those two scenes stick out for me a little bit, and I'd rather that they weren't there. The other thing is that as soon as the film, because Theron is so compelling, the minute that the film moves away from her, we sort of move away from the movie a little. Yeah. She really needs to be there. Yeah. But, I mean, look, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the film for me. They only last a, a matter of minutes in the film. But I just think it's interesting that she chose to break away from the subjective way she was telling the story, particularly for that witness scene, because we don't need it. Yeah, no. The film doesn't really do much to help us exp- understand how the police caught her. No, it would be fine if they just showed that scene where Selby's watching the TV and their sketches are on the... That's TV. right. So are you saying that you killed in self-defense or in, in cold blood what do you what do because you, you you've changed your story i'm just trying to what are you start talking about change story and what no about whether it was self-defense or not i'm not going to say it you know i'm not going to get in depth about my cases nick i'm on my way to the chamber nothing's stopping it you can believe it or you don't have to believe it that's up to you man put a big question mark on your film what was interesting about her crimes was that it was a twenty-two caliber and most people don't commit murder with that. It's sort of a defensive weapon. Mm-hmm. So that made it very interesting. That's how they were able to then link the other murders and go, oh, we actually have a serial killer. So her first crime was committed with a, a weapon that is not necessarily used to kill someone. You wouldn't buy that weapon in the US to go to say, oh, I want to commit a murder. What's, what's good for mm. that? That is very interesting. Yeah, and that's why she had to shoot them seven or eight times, because the weapon just simply wasn't strong enough. And I heard those um, those guns hold eight or nine bullets, the ones that, the, the particular one that she was using. Yeah. There's obviously a case to be made that Warnos turned to murder after she was raped and beaten by Richard Mallory. She was acting in self-defence, and I think that's, personally, I think that's believable in both the film and in real life. The film hinges a lot on that scene. If you take the film as without any knowledge of Warnos, then 
you would definitely feel a sympathy for her regarding that. Whether or not that sympathy stays with you for the rest of the movie, I guess, is an individual experience for everybody. If you don't believe that all of this happened as Warner says it did, then in real life, I guess that you have to look a little bit further for justification. She never met her father, who hanged himself while in prison while serving a life sentence for raping a seven-year-old girl. She was sexually abused by her grandfather. She was raped when she was 13. She had a child when she was 14 who was put up for adoption. She dropped out of school, left home, began working as a prostitute following the death of her grandmother. Her grandfather later committed suicide and her brother died of cancer. So I'd probably kill someone at that point as well. That sounds like a pretty bad, you know, 15 years of life. And after her first killing, it's very possible that she continued to kill because she had a very real fear that Tyria Moore was uh, going to leave the relationship if she couldn't be supported. Her prostitution was the only way of providing that support. However, following the altercation with Mallory, she was probably physically unable to engage in some of the same kind of sexual acts that she had been able to before that was her profession. So it was easier to kill someone. And I would say removing the fact that this person has worked as a prostitute for so long, you're still going to have some kind of physical and emotional reaction to being raped. So if that happens, I don't think it's unusual that she wouldn't be able to go back into that situation willingly. I guess some of what we see in the movie with Aileen trying to move away from prostitution, trying to support her in a different way, is a kind of post-traumatic stress reaction to what's happened to her in the film. And I think that's very genuine. It's like with every murder after that rape, she's projecting herself back into the survival mode she switched into during the initial rape scene. And then with each murder, we see her trying to convince herself of something that's irrational. So, you know, that her life is in danger or that the man that she's with is bad. He's a child molester. You know, that's a fucking child molester. And you can just see her, like, trying to, like, convince herself. What's the joke that she says? Oh, you fuck your kids? (laughs) I fucking laugh my ass off every time she does that because it's so awkward. No, my favourite laugh moment is when she says, fuck you, Leslie, and always will be. (laughs) Fuck you, Leslie! Which she ad-libbed, apparently. This is an interesting area that we're getting into, which is about this idea of the the doomsday narrative and that um, Woronos is definitely presented as a victim of the world and everyone. We see her being victimised by her clients, one of whom rapes her, the workforce, like that really complacent, smarmy lawyer who laughs her out of his office. He probably shouldn't have done that, but it is, that's that's kind of, um, you know, when you wish you could say something to your boss, but you can't, so you dream it instead. You get those scenes in movies, the daydream where you, you punch your boss and say what you really think. That's kind of what somebody wishes they could say to somebody who walks in and thinks that they have qualifications for a job that they haven't worked for the same way that everybody else has. We see her being victimised by the cops, mm. like the one who takes her underground and blackmails her into giving him a head job, and then her girlfriend, yes. Selby. So from every conceivable angle, this woman is being treated like a piece of refuse. The triggers that drive her to murder in the film are the trauma of that initial rape, but also her love of Selby and rejection. She wasn't trying to hide things. Most killers will make sure they've got away with something and they'll do a plan and they'll, you know, that'll be enough for them for six months because that's what they set out to do. Whereas she didn't get that satisfaction from these crimes. She didn't go back saying, oh, I've killed someone and I'm 
satiated for the next six months. No, she was quite sensible about it. I mean, she removed fingerprints from the cars. She didn't go out to bars and get drunk and start spilling her guts like some people do. So, I mean, there was definitely not a psychosis at work. She wasn't psychotic or schizophrenic or anything. She managed to keep her crimes covered for an impressive amount of time, really. But I don't think anything that we've said here is a justification for that very real, very final act of killing, merely presenting the possible and plausible reasons that Warnos could have turned to murder uh, in her own mind. And, you know, throughout the most of the murders, we see her using these irrational justifications for it. So we have the initial one with the child. He's a child molester because he made some you know, comment about wanting to be called daddy when she had sex with him. And then the next one is when she's talking to the cop and she says, oh, you know, my dad had a friend and he used to, like, rape me. And then when I told my dad, my dad beat me for it. And so, you know, she kind of starts to associate this guy for no reason that makes sense with this figure from her childhood. Yeah. By the time the last murder rolls around, she's run out of justifications. There's two instances where she can't justify it. And one of them is with the stutterer. Who she doesn't kill. Who she doesn't kill because she can't justify killing him. And the last one, she can't justify it either. But she does it. But she does it, but she apologises for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really the most horrifying moment, mm. apart from the rape, is when you see her realising she's going to kill this guy without any justification. Yeah. However deluded. Yeah. She's just going to do it. And she's going to do it because she loves Selby and she needs some money and she needs a car. She needs to get home. It is a very difficult scene to watch. He's, he's begging for his life. He's begging to see his wife. He's begging to see his unborn uh, grandchildren. And he's been lovely. You know, she's tried to offer him sex. And he's like, no, but I'll give you a lift. I'll get you home to your kids. What do you need? Here's some money. And then, you know, she's about to get out of the car, which is, again, Patty Jenkins kind of justifying this character a little bit. She gets out of the car and the gun falls out of her thing and he sees it and then she realises, oh, now I've got to kill him because he's seen me with a gun and he's going to tell the police. Yeah. Oh, God, my wife. My wife. My daughter's having a baby. Shut the fuck up! Oh, God. Oh, God, I'm sorry. My babies. My grandbabies. Charlie's Theron said with Eileen, the thing that always broke my heart with her is that she was so not picky when it came to who was going to love her. She would have taken it from anybody, from anybody, and that really broke my heart. And I think that that gets to the heart of this film, is the idea that this character just finds one little sliver of light in all of this darkness, and she just clings to that light. And, you know, she's an outsider, and an underdog, and a reject, and it's just so easy to give yourself over to a character like that because we've all felt at times like an outsider and a reject and all of those things. Mm. The love story in this film is presented so beautifully and I love I love the skating rink scene. Mm. You know, Don't Stop Believing comes on and then like Eileen's like, hold my hand, dance with me. She's like, no, my cousin's over there. Well, who cares about him? Everything about it is so beautiful and then how those characters' faces slowly come together as those different swells of that song start to build 
And then it culminates in that scene which is done in silhouette against the corner of the building. Yeah. And the way that they're making love in that scene is just so furious. You can feel each other's desperation to connect. That scene is about connection. I love that this film is never sexy. Yeah. Also, another thing that I really admire about the film is the, the way that Patty Jenkins frames that rape scene. Because it's not at all gratuitous or graphic, and yet you feel like you've seen so much. Yeah. But really, it's just a, a quite a low-angled shot, a very plain, simple shot, the centre of the frame, and what you're really looking at is Charlize's face. Yeah. As she's being raped with a metal pole as she's having rubbing alcohol poured on her. Horrible. We've spoken a lot about the killings and the darkness of this movie, but yeah, there is, during those scenes of the relationship blossoming, I mean, there are some scenes of real beauty, and the the skating rink is one of them. Oh, I can't see that. Yeah, you can. No, 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 come on, come with me. Trevor. So who cares about him? Come on. You ready? Here you go. I got you. Okay, you navigator, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really phenomenal way of telling that story in such a dark film. And the chemistry between the two of them is beautiful. Mm. The score by BT is stunning. It's a really beautiful piece of work. Unfortunately, you can't stream it on Spotify. I noticed that because I was looking for it and I couldn't get it. Yeah, it's um, the playlist of a lot of the music is available on YouTube. Someone's done that. But if you haven't heard it before um, or haven't taken note of it, it's just really amazing. And the soundtrack for Monster, which we bought, I think, at the time. Yeah, we did, yeah. (laughs) It's not actually taken directly from the film. He actually built proper tracks. So even though it is the music from the film, Mm. it's such a pleasure to listen to just without the film and listen to it as a as an audio audio piece yeah because he's he's built it so that it's its own thing you know it's not just in service of images it's its own thing i mean i assume listening to the podcast like we're recording it right now and it hasn't been edited but i'm i'm assuming luke would have put some music from the soundtrack in here somewhere that you might have heard i'll put that over i'll put the music on it's probably playing right now Romance recurs a couple of times and there are a few moments where it, it pitches in such a beautiful way. And the, the second time is really with the Ferris wheel, which is one of the most beautiful moments in the film because it's, again, a moment where the film is contrasting Eileen's perception of what's happening with what we're seeing happening. So we can hear Eileen talking about people think I took the easy way out with prostitution but they have no idea how hard it is isn't that funny that someone would say someone took the easy way out by becoming a prostitute which people do say that I guess that's so 
horrible. And yeah, it feels truthful when she says it. You know, you recognise it. I've heard conservative politicians or people like that say that. But also she's saying, I loved her. And as we're watching her watch Selby, you know, she's kind of, you want to go to Fun World? We'll go to fucking Fun World. She's taken the woman she loves to where she wants to be. And she's watching Selby go off with these idiots that she met at a bar and trying to be best friends with them and trying to get a new girlfriend even. And she doesn't care. She's just taken her there because that's where she wants to go. And then when Selby's friends kind of say, no, we're not interested, Selby finds Eileen, who's on a roller, like on one of those little roller cars things, and says, come on, I want to ride the Ferris wheel. And Lee looks so happy to have been chosen to sit next to her on the Ferris wheel. Set to that music as they're going up, and Lee's already told us the story about how she had this Ferris wheel as a kid called the Monster that she always wanted to ride, and that when she finally got on it, it, it terrified her, and she threw up, and she was scared. The idea that she's now on this Ferris wheel, and you can see that it's making her nervous to be that high, but it's also kind of counteracted by the fact that she's sitting there with this person that she loves who loves her back and what that means to this person who's been searching all her life in a dark well for something like this and has finally got it and um it's echoed in uh, another serial killer um, a homosexual love story that ends on a Ferris wheel um, last year, Love, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> the third amazing moment of this romance, the third, I guess, notch, is obviously the bus stop scene, which is, I don't even know if I can really get through talking about this scene because I just, I just even think about it and I start to tear up. But it's a scene where they've... Uh, They've seen the sketches on television. They know that they're being hunted by the police. So Eileen does what she had told Selby she would do from the beginning of the film, which was, if you ever want to leave, I'm going to buy a bus ticket for you and I'm going to get you out. But just stay with me. Take a chance. You'll never meet anybody like me. And in this scene, they know that it's over. They just know it's over. And the scene is reminiscent of the scene in Requiem for a Dream where Jared Leto says to Jennifer Connelly, I'll come today. It's two people, because Eileen's saying to her, you'll come back. We'll get yeah, yeah, this. I'll yeah, get some help and you'll come back. This will all go over and then you'll come back. Maybe if I just get a little help. I know I fucked up. And, and at this point as a viewer, you're thinking, well, why would anybody go back to this dingy little town? to live this life you know it's over as a viewer it feels like it's over it feels final it feels like even though the characters are saying what they're saying to get through the moment they both know it's over oh yeah christina ricci's performance in this moment where she's just got that frown that big frown on her face and charlie's when she's shaking because it's the first time we see this character unraveling and being honest with herself you know suddenly there is self-awareness there for the first time because she admits that she fucked up and she admits that she screwed everything up. Do you think this is the best part of her performance? It's hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. How do you it's even a, it's, quantify it's it? It's different than the rest of her performance this scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Eileen is so much about posturing. Mm. You know, she's got the puffed out chest and she's, a, you know, she, I'm going to look after my girl. And she just, she assumes roles throughout the film. You know, one time she's all dressed up and trying to go straight and Christian and stuff. And then the, the next time she's sort of in the cars thing. This guy's a child molester. Oh my God, I'm, I'm a hero. I'm a Bonnie and Clyde figure. And then the next scene, she's at the bar and she's got her arm looped around her girl and she's like a big bloke. So, I mean, this is the first scene where all of those masks come off and it's just a human 
are raw, frightened, terrified, deeply regrettable person. We see her as she is, really, for the first time, rather than as somebody who's... That's true. ...trying to play a, play a part. I think we've talked enough about Woronos as a sympathetic figure. I'm sure that Sue's comments on that will probably be far more interesting than anything that we could say. But just about some of the backlash that the film got when it was released about that. Brad Wyman, the producer, said it's not a documentary. I mean, in no way is it. It is a dramatic portrayal searching for a kind of greater truth rather than a factual truth. And Jenkins famously did not talk to any of the victims' families whilst preparing this film. She said she didn't want to unearth more tragedy in their lives. And, of course, there's a little bit of irony in this (laughs) because making the film itself is going to inevitably reopen old wounds. One of the prosecutors, the man who prosecuted Warreno, said about the film and these filmmakers you know these men had wives they have daughters brothers sons friends and anyone that sees that film is left with the impression that at least some of the men that were murdered deserve to die and that she was acting in self-defense and that's a total lie i think um it's interesting to look at this film from the response that it got from feminist circles this is far too big to kind of answer on our podcast so i'm just going to summarize some of what's already been written there's an element of the feminist left who believe that warnos actions were an honest if not justified response to gender oppression uh, that they were acts of liberation Uh, Terry Ginsburg wrote in a thesis, lesbian violence as fascist crusade in Monster. They were a demonstration of a woman's desire for agency and autonomy in a world dominated by white, male, Protestant heterosexism. It's certainly difficult to argue with this in a theoretical sense. Disagreeing with it minimises the impact of belonging to a to a minority. Having had experience as a member of a minority, I'd obviously never want to consciously do that. So I think there's plenty of room for theoretical justifications, even if you can't justify Warnos real-life actions. Angelita Manzano uh, went a little further than this in the far-left feminist publication Off Our Backs, stating, This was not the story of a psychopath but a survivor, not a monster, but a woman struggling to be recognised as a human being, worthy of love, respect and dignity. In this context, Aileen's murders do not seem evil. They appear to be rational, even moral decisions when made in the context of gross gender and class oppression. For some viewers, this may be overwhelming. Please be advised that this will be a painful movie to watch. One uh, quote that was written about uh, Jenkins' sympathetic portrayal, or supposed sympathetic portrayal, they use words like superficial, stereotypical, melodramatic, but they wrote that Theron's Warnos was precisely the pathetic figure that a mainstream reviewer like Ebert was to embrace, a classic victim, a perpetrator, sadly guilty of her crimes, despite their attributivity to paranoid projections of painful, sublimated memories of childhood sexual abuse economic deprivation triggered by the ambivalent eruption of an ostensibly liberatory lesbian desire. Such a pathetic positioning rehearses the social-psychological double-bind that Warnos was a psychotic sexual deviant whose murderous acts might have been prevented with better parenting or social family intervention. Christopher Orr of The Atlantic looks at this in a brilliant review which is done of both the film and Nick Broomfield's documentaries, which was written in 2004. He says, The denial of moral agency is our culture's knee-jerk response to women who commit horrible crimes. As Patricia Pearson argues in her revelatory 1997 book, When She Was Bad, How and Why Women Get Away with Murder, the operative assumption is that the woman couldn't have wanted deliberately to cause harm. Therefore, if she says she was abused, coerced, insane, she probably was. 
He states that this um, similar defence of childhood abuse doesn't really work so well for people like Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy, Henry Lee Lucas. They don't have the same kind of gravitas attached to that response. But he does say that while it did assist uh, warn us in her portrayals on screen and in the media, ultimately the self-defence and childhood abuse defences didn't much help her because she was still sentenced to death. Jenkins was quoted as saying, I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to find that space in between the man-hunting lesbian serial killer and the feminist hero. And I think she did that. I don't think she's gone one way either way. I don't get the sense that she's doing it because she hates men. I don't think she decides, I hate men, I'm going to kill them all. Although there is definitely a sense of rage about the film from a woman who has been marginalised by all of the associations that men make of women. You know, they associate them with sex and with being kind of subordinate to men. The film does evoke that sense of outrage that women must feel in their everyday lives, obviously in extremists, you know. It does it really well, and I think that that's one of the film's strengths, if anything. I identify with Lee in the film because I'm a gay guy. And so, you know, that makes me sometimes feel uh, left of centre or outside of, of of the mainstream. And I think that's what I mean. Anyone who's ever felt a sense of being an outsider will find a way to understand this person and their contempt and their anger and their frustration and their exhaustion. And, and it is. It is very powerfully done. There's, there's an argument that could be made that making her human is a little misogynistic because it's almost saying that a woman can't be just a cruel, demented, strange figure on screen, that we need to justify her because women are the finer sex and they ultimately just want love and they want this and they want that. This isn't a film like Taxi Driver where you watch Travis Bickle and go, I understand his reasons, but he's mad. He's not a nice person. Lee, throughout the whole film, even though she does terrible things, there was the opportunity for her to be good. Deep down, there is someone who would really like to have a nice life. Travis Bickle doesn't get that out. Lee does in this film. And so then there's that question about, well, is that because she was a woman? Is that why they made that decision? You look at another performance like um, Annie Wilkes in Misery. They don't justify. (laughs) You know, she's just batshit crazy scary. And she's a figure of fear and a figure of menace. And and Lee Warrenos is is just not that. It's it's something else. It's another animal. It's it's really interesting to discuss. I, I don't have enough education or or enough experience to really weigh in on it but i think it's really interesting to think about Mm. listen to me this is a once in a lifetime opportunity give me a week you want to go later i'll buy you a fucking ticket okay i'll take you there myself just give me a week you'll never meet someone like me Lee Warrenos was diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder, and that's an illness that usually develops in a person's teenage or young adult years. And by the end of Lee's life, she was exhibiting symptoms of schizophrenia and psychosis from having been on death row, having spent, I think it's 24 hours a day for 12 years uh, in solitary confinement. Some of the characteristics of it, someone who's 
unable to regulate their emotions, which we see in the film, prone to a fear of abandonment, which is the whole reason for everything that happens in the film, Uh, relationships, which are unusually intense and unstable, sufferers are often deeply insecure about themselves, they are prone to taking risks and acting impulsively, it's a high risk for suicide and drug alcohol abuse, and we see both of those things in this film, and they're unable to control their anger. In respect to that illness, certainly Patty Jenkins and Charlie Theron create a very, very convincing portrait of somebody who has this condition. I agree with you, yeah. Uh, we see Lee believing herself to be intellectually superior and above the law. And she says things like, who the fuck knows what God wants? You know, people kill for politics and religion every day. Says who? I can kill people. We definitely see her as... as a victim of circumstance, but Lee never sees herself as a victim. But she does at one point when she has that conversation with... With Bruce Dern. Yeah, well, Bruce Dern, who's a Vietnam veteran, says that uh, they're both victims of circumstance, essentially. And you can see that when he says that to her, that she's kind of clocking on to that for the first time. Yeah. But until then, she doesn't ever see herself as a victim, and we do. This is again, comes back to that lack of self-awareness, which is what makes the character so touching some people are so honest that they refuse to accept that something has happened to them for some outside reason they think that i'm the reason there's something that's happened in my life that i have not responded to in a particular way that has made me do this and this and this and so they just say well i've got to make money by in her case becoming a prostitute and so she does it and it's just a natural kind of evolution of her life whereas there are some people who say well this injustice happened to me. Something breaks down at that point. They become unable to take some kind of accountability. There are people who live on their excuses. Yeah. It's funny, we get the feeling that Selby is that sort of person. Don't actually ever really see her do it, but we certainly get the feeling that... There's a horrible scene in the film with Selby, and it's really difficult to watch. Eileen has higher hopes for herself. She mm. she hopes to get away from prostitution. She says, I'll go back to it. It's all I've ever known. Who am I kidding? I'm a hooker. And Selby says so half-heartedly, I can look for something. Yeah, yeah. You know? She doesn't mean it for a second. Yeah. Oh, it's so horrible. You just want someone to give Eileen a break. Yeah, that's right. And in real life, Tyria was a, a maid, and she worked on and off throughout all of knowing Lee. So the film definitely, in that sense, right. takes creative license with giving her a real motive. Another thing that happens in the film but it's never really discussed is that we see her get more and more dependent upon alcohol. Yes. You know, like the last scene where she kills that guy. She's so drunk when she gets in that car. Yeah. And then, you know, we see her on the street and she just starts to look more diminished and there's that scene where Selby comes into the hotel room she's like, hey, baby, and she's sitting on the table. You know, the character actually gets less and less sober (laughs) as the film goes on. Do you think part of that is because she can afford it? No, I think that it's because she's just not coping with herself and what she's done, and or at least that's how it, it makes me feel when I'm watching the movie. And I just think that Theron is amazing at modulating how drunk she is throughout this film, and it's something else that she's doing mm. that you're not noticing because she's doing already doing so much. It's only when you watch it a few more times that you just think, oh, fucking hell, that's mm. amazing. Yeah. She has a lack of empathy, but it's because she's convinced herself that her victims are bad people and that they deserve to die, that she's saving cleaning the streets, saving their future victims from being victimised. To feel empathy, she would have to admit that they didn't deserve to die, and she can't do that without impugning herself. Yeah. And she can't live with that idea. So, yeah, she does have a lack of empathy, but it's because she's built this careful 
neurotic safeguard so that she doesn't have to feel empathy. And I've done everything in the whole wide world, hoping that you'd never have to know. So you, so you could go on thinking that people are good and kind, and that should make sense, you know? Because I love that about you, Sil, but I can't. No, I don't want to hear this, Lee. I know, but you need to. We can be as different as we want to be, but you can't kill people. Says who? Christina Ricci as Selby. There were some reviewers who didn't quite, really quite like what she did in the film. I'm sure you'll include that in when we talk about the release and reception. Yeah, and I don't think it's her best work. I think she embodies Selby with enough to give the audience an understanding of her and of Aileen's attraction to her, of the selfishness, the childishness that ultimately brings... It doesn't bring about Aileen's downfall, but it doesn't help. I think she's very truly a supporting character. You know, she's the definition of supporting character. I don't have any mis- misconceptions that she under-delivered on what she was asked to deliver on in this movie and I think the critics in that respect have been a bit too harsh on her for this role and uh, she's never going to be a co-lead with Theron. She was a supporting character in this movie that was about somebody else. And if she didn't work, we wouldn't care so much at the end. That's right. You know, there there is real chemistry between these two actresses. You know, you really... I, I love watching her in the film even though I hate who she is. Yeah. Do you know, like, that part where she's on the phone to her dad? She's like, I'm an adult now and I'm going to do what I want. You know, she just sounds like a little sulky kid. You want that character to say, no, this is what I'm doing. And it's a little bit of a different way of portraying a classic Christina Ricci character, which is, I mean, she can have so much heart. But at the same time, Christina Ricci plays a great manipulative character in a lot of movies. And she's well. tough. And Yeah, and she's tough and she's smart. Yeah. And so this is a different way of playing that manipulation in this movie. She's not smart. In fact, she's downright horrible and she's uh, unintelligent about what she does. But she's manipulative because Aileen is so desperate. And she's kind of empty as a person. She's a bad person, but not because she's aggressively trying to be. Mm. She's a bad person because she kind of opts out of things. Yeah. And she's just weak and feckless yeah. and empty. It's and easy to say, oh, I'll sit at home, you go and make them. Yeah. Up. And Christina Ricci, I told you, said I didn't know really how to approach her because she's like a few of my people that I've known who are really weak and just always have excuses and are always whinging about their life but are never doing anything to fix their own problem. And she said, you know, I, I approach the character from that perspective and by the end of the film had more sympathy for that personality type i don't think we do though we definitely don't no i think if anything it kind of confirms how much how dislikable weak people are or people that are kind of always complaining about their lives and their circumstances i wonder if we put ourselves in that why would you want to the reason one of the reasons why we love lee is because it's contrasted with selby and lee is an optimist and she's a mover and she is someone who takes charge for better or worse, and very often for worse, but she, at least she takes charge and she has a real agency. One reason that we don't completely ever shelve Selby is because she is the only person in the film, apart from Bruce Dern, who only has maybe two scenes, she's the only person in the film who looks at Lee and talks to Lee like she's a person. Yeah. And that means a lot to us because we see Lee as a person, but no one else does in the film. Yeah.
Monster had a slow release over the course of two months. It debuted the weekend of Christmas 2003 in just four theatres, taking home the weekend record with an average of just under $22,000 per screen on the back of strong critical praise. It continued ranking strongly in this stat over the next two weeks, second and then third, with averages surpassing $10,000 each time. It finally opened a little bit wider, up from just four debut screens to, in its eighth weekend, a little over 1,000 screens. It continued bringing in a couple of million dollars per weekend, eventually finished on 34.5 million during its 23-week run, about one-third of which were in semi-wide release or 200 more screens. On a budget of $8 million, Monster proved to be a huge commercial success for New Market, adding another $26 million outside of the US for a total gross of just over $60 million. For a low-budget film about a lesbian serial killer directed by a woman, it's a pretty remarkable achievement. Among films with LGBT themes, Monster ranks 13th all-time for box office, ahead of such recent critical successes as A Single Man, Carol, Milk, Dallas Buyers Club, Call Me By Your Name, and the Best Picture winning Moonlight. Monster is also the highest grossing film of all time about a real-life serial killer, narrowly holding off 2007's David Fincher thriller Zodiac and Fox's big-budget Jack the Ripper biopic From Hell. Critically, Monster currently holds a rating of 81% on Rotten Tomatoes from a total of 186 reviews. This is one of the few instances where critics and audiences agree because the film holds exactly the same rating from 85,000 viewers. The majority of reviewers were overwhelming in their praise of Theron as Warnos, even while thinking the film had its limitations. Roger Ebert gave the film his full four stars, and on December 30th of 2009, he ranked it the third best film of the decade, trailing only Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, and Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. He said, What Charlize Theron achieves in Patty Jenkins' Monster isn't a performance but an embodiment. I didn't recognise her, but more to the point, I hardly tried, because the performance is so focused and intense that it becomes a fact of life. Observe the way Theron controls her eyes in the film. There is not a flicker of inattention, as she urgently communicates what she is feeling and thinking. There's the uncanny sensation that Theron has forgotten the camera and the script and is directly channeling her ideas about Aileen Warnos. She has made herself the instrument of this character. Peter Bradshaw of the UK's Guardian newspaper said that the film had the energy of shock exploitation trash coupled with the insights of shrewd psychological drama. I spoke about this review a little bit earlier, but it's so good that I want to quote a little bit more. Christopher Orr of The Atlantic had problems with the movie itself, but again praised Theron in her role. Though more than a few reviewers claim to have discerned hidden reserves in Theron from her roles in movies such as The Devil's Advocate and Celebrity, the truth is that over the course of her still brief career, she had shown little sign that she was destined for anything more than eye candy to. But in Monster, Theron gives a performance that is certainly remarkable. Much has been made of Theron's physical transformation, the weight she gained, the meticulously applied freckles and crooked teeth, but what truly impresses is the way she works from the outside in, discerning the character from the evidence of her body. Theron finds the weight of Warnos two decades as a prostitute in the extra pounds and layers of makeup with which she encumbers herself. The Joffrey Ballet-trained actress conveys just the right discomfort in her body, constantly torn between rejecting her femininity and playing it up, her swagger half macho, half terrified. It's a triumph of method acting that falters only in two circumstances, in her voiceovers, wherein she seems to revert to the lovely, thin, uninteresting Theron of past performances, 
and a couple of key confrontations with Christina Ricci, who plays her young lesbian lover. Still, these are quibbles. Theron's performance is brave, and it is true. In a mostly positive review for the New York Times, critic Stephen Holden was astounded by Theron's makeover, but not as superlative in his praise of her co-star. He said the film is so determined not to sentimentalise the affair of Warnos and Selby that it is shown as a sad case study of dysfunction and desperate codependence. The movie's biggest disappointment is the vague, unfocused performance of Ms. Ritchie, an actress known for taking risky, unsympathetic roles. Here, she seems somewhat intimidated by her character. Although Ms. Jenkins' screenplay gives her the seeds to create a complex portrait, Ms. Ritchie re- resists plumbing Selby's selfish, shallow exterior to discover her humanity. Carla Mayer for SFGate looked at the film on a different level uh, from an LGBT perspective. She too had problems with Ricci. Monster contains a lesbian story free of titillation and hooray for that. Instead, the movie focuses on the dangerous dynamic between two people who might have been harmless alone. Selby urges her lover to continue hooking to support them, even after learning that she has killed a man after he raped and beat her. The need to earn a a living squeezes Warnos into an untenable situation. No longer beaten down and in fact emboldened by love, she reacts to degrading situations by robbing and killing men who pick her up. Jenkins seems so intent on balance that her film refuses to judge Ricci, whose real-life counterpart was the chief witness in Warnos' prosecution. This approach fits the ambiguity of this version of Warnos' life, but strands Ritchie. Selby's fuzzy motivation boxes the actress into a performance that's often unreadable. The character didn't have to be much to attract a lost soul like Warnos, but for viewers convinced by Theron's magnificent show of ardour that this girl means the world to her, she should have been more than this. The most common thread among the small percentage of negative reviews that came through for Monster was that the film was very midday movie. Jeremiah Kipp wrote a particularly scathing review for Slant magazine that argues for that side. Monster is pretty tepid stuff, conventionally told in a series of lifetime confrontations between Warnos and her naive little girlfriend Selby Wall, Christina Ricci, a pallid cupid doll next to Theron's shaggy Amazonian. The rape sequences feel like B-movie exploitation, aiming for tragic high art. The whole time I was craving Abel Ferrara and Ms. 45 star Zoe Lund to separate the naughty girls from the bad, bad women. Theron and Richie enjoy their game of sleazy dress-up, condescending to Hicksville without ever tapping into the desperation, humanity, or experiential knowledge of the oppressed. Instead, they resort to brute theatrics and futile Oscar baiting. Well, the Oscar baiting worked. Theron's performance earned her the Best Actress at both the Academy Awards and Golden Globes, as well as the Screen Actors Guild's outstanding lead performance by a female actor. It also earned her oodles of awards in state and country-based film critics' polls. And all of this just two years after she was nominated for the Worst Actress Razzie for Sweet November. (laughs) But don't worry, Mariah Carey's Glitter was released that year. I think I've spoken to you before about how it does feel like a TV movie to me and how it's shot. Yeah. It, it even sometimes feels sitcom in that I feel like we go to the same setups, especially like, you know, the prostitute scenes. I feel like you could almost, there's there's no differentiation in them, in the way that they're photographed. It's just that boxy shot. Feels like we're driving down the same road, in fact. There's one really great shot, which is that slow motion shot where the smoke's coming out of Lee's face. Do you remember that? Mm. It doesn't matter because it tells a great story. It's beautifully written and amazingly performed. 
but I do feel like there are limitations. I don't think the cinematography is very special. And interestingly, the cinematographer I noticed hasn't really done much else. He's done right. a lot of television. Mm. Should we uh, move on to the quiz? The quiz. Wrap this bitch up. What you've all been waiting for. I'll go first. Sure. What was Aileen Moranos' name at birth? Don't know. <laughs> it was Eileen Carol Pittman. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Okay. Multiple choice. Oh. Aileen Warnos was once married to a man named Louis Fell, which actually sounds a lot like uh, something out of Silence of the Lambs now, <laughs> um, who took out a restraining order against her after she was arrested for A, shooting him in the leg during a fight, B, throwing a pool ball at a bartender's head, C, beating him with his cane when she wanted money. It was C. No. In fact... She was arrested for throwing a pool ball at a bartender's head. She did beat him with her cane, but that's not what she was arrested for. Oh, you're a pain in the ass, Damien. I did say she was arrested. What was she arrested for? So, question two. Name the first dialogue scene shot in the movie. Uh, who? The first dialogue scene shot or the first dialogue scene shown? Shot. Shot. Oh, um, it's tough. It's going to be a complete guess, but I'm going to go for... The one where she says, fuck you, Leslie. No. <laughs> the first scene shot was where Lee and Selby meet in the bar. Oh, so it was shot in chronological order? No, no, just that was happened to be the first scene. You're just trying to fool me here. You say that and I think, oh, well, it must have been one of the later scenes. <laughs> Which person either involved in the making of the film Monster or depicted in the film was once a runner-up for Time Magazine's Person of the Year? I'm going to say Patty Jenkins. Very good. She was. Patty Jenkins was a runner-up last year. Because of Wonder Woman? Yes. But you know they do a lot of weird choices. They make criminals runners-up to man and person of the year. So, I, I, you know, it could have been Eileen. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But you are correct. What movie did Eileen reference in her final words before execution? I feel like I should know this. I'm trying to remember what she said. It was batshit crazy. It's when she's being walked into the room. So it's not in the movie? Oh, it's not in the movie. No. Oh. The well. real life Eileen. What movie did she know. reference? Independence Day. She referenced Independence Day? Yeah, she said something like, I'm going to come back on the rock uh, Independence Day like the film on June 6th. She said some gibberish about that. <sighs> okay. So this is the decider. I'm on one, you're on nothing. One of the undercover police officers who, who arrests Aileen Warnos in the film has actually played a killer himself. Which horror movie villain did this actor famously portray on more than one occasion? Jason. Yes. <laughs> did you know that? Yeah, I'd read that. The bigger police officers played by Kane Hodder, who is definitely the most famous Jason Voorhees. Oh. Played him in 7, 8, 9 and 10. Oh, that's cool. So, rating out of five, Damien? Well, you know, for me, it's five stars. I'm too emotionally attached to this film to give it any less. But I do think that the performance is... One of the best I've ever seen. Definitely one of the best of the last couple of decades. Um, and uh, the subject matter, the the fact that this is not just a serial killer film, but it is a queer film. I, I think there's a lot that draws me to it. I have an emotional reaction to the movie. I, I think it's just a really special piece of filmmaking. I'm really glad that we were able to focus on this movie in an episode of the podcast, especially given that we've been looking at female directors. This is a this is a strong female-centric film by a female director with a, a gay love story. Uh, I mean, everything's just kind of coming together. But uh, yeah, for me, it's five stars. I know it does have its limitations, but I'm still... I can't give it any less than that. No, I mean, if... 
a film makes you feel really strongly, then it's silly to kind of chip away at a rating because of little quibbles you have, cerebral quibbles, because the film films are meant to make us feel, and Monster does that. Yeah. Look, I gave it 4.5, having, having just said what I said. There are some things about the narrowness of the writing. I think my big problem with the film is the... I don't particularly like when a film has a doomsday narrative like this, where all that sense of fatalism, like this is always going to go wrong no matter what the character does. It's almost like locked-in syndrome. So, you know, the character can't punch their way out of where the writer wants them to end up. And that feeling sometimes bothers me about Monster. But it's also part of what makes the film so moving and upsetting and memorable. So it's interesting. But I'm going to give it 4.5 out of 5. I prefer a story to be told in a way like Snowtown, where you feel like... What did you give Snowtown? Because you recently rewatched that. 5, I think. You gave that 5. Okay. Yeah. Where, where you feel like um, you're not being boxed in by the writer, where you feel like anything could happen. There's that there's that breadth in the writing. And have you recently rewatched Zodiac as well? Yeah. And what did you give that? Five, I think. Okay. Yeah, so actually that's interesting. Um, I'll have to check that, but I'm pretty sure I gave both five. Having said that, I don't find either of them as upsetting or troubling as Monster. It is a very, very troubling, interesting movie, and... Charlize Theron and what she does in the film is remarkable. It is just so artistic and brilliant and endlessly fascinating. And I know I will watch Monster for the rest of my life. I'll watch it every few years when I can summon the strength. And um, I will always watch her and just be awed by what she does. Yeah, I can't wait. I hope they do a sequel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You weren't even thinking about what you were saying. No. (laughs) This was one of those performances where you get woken up to somebody. Yes. I'd seen The Devil's Advocate, and I agree with that review. She was not special. No. And there was no reason. I, I don't know what Patty Jenkins was seeing, but... Charlie's Theron came back on my radar with Mad Max. I was so taken by that film, and particularly her in it. She's someone who generally doesn't make the kinds of movies that you or I are interested in, mm-hmm. but Monster and Mad Max are two really important exceptions. Yeah. Tell us about your experience with Wonder Woman, Lou. Yeah. So for this podcast, I thought I'd better watch this movie that's made Patty Jenkins such an important figure. Uh, we uh, just like to say anybody who loved Monster loved Patty Jenkins when she was relevant. Not uh, that, that sounded harsh, but she had made this extraordinary movie and then she disappeared. And came back with Wonder Woman, which is like the highest grossing film ever for a female filmmaker. I have avoided Marvel and DC films because they're just not my cup of tea. I put on Wonder Woman and I got through 15 minutes of it. I, I had real intentions to watch it the whole way through. Unfortunately, and for most people who would have seen this, they'll know, Wonder Woman starts with um, it looks like a really uh, high-produced episode of Xena. It very, very quickly goes into this big expository scene with these CGI figures that represent Zeus and all this crap about, oh, you know, there was Zeus created man and it was wonderful, but then his son was jealous of man, so he put selfishness and spite into their hearts, and then he got banished, and then Zeus created a magical island, and that's where Wonder Woman lives. It just, it tries to simplify all these complex ideas about human life, and it sounds weirdly like a Scientology spiel, and everything just felt so hammerblow stated, and I just thought, I can't do this, I just can't, I cannot do this, it's irritating the fucking shit out of me. So I, I turned it off. And uh, I won't be revisiting it. But I'm very happy for 
Patty Jenkins' success. And I'm glad that um, for the people who love Wonder Woman, I'm glad that you like it. It's just not my bag, but that's it. You know, I feel like um, you've said that that starts with a big voiceover. I feel like Monster could be told without a voiceover. Yeah, I actually think the voiceovers are um, that... I agree with that review that that's sort of where you don't feel Lee as much in them. I mean, you get some information that is helpful, but I feel like the the visuals of this movie are so much stronger than the information that you get from the voiceovers, unlike something like Goodfellas, where the voiceovers are just as essential to the experience as the action that you're watching. That wraps up our episode on Monster and season two of this podcast. Ooh. I know. Uh, I can't believe 20 episodes, Damien. I know. And a few specials as well. So 23 episodes. If you've missed any of them, you can check them out on YouTube. Just search for Celluloid Junkies or on celluloidjunkies.com. And we have also started posting some articles on celluloidjunkies.com. So if you head there and check out the blog, you'll see some reviews of movies and we'll have some more articles coming, including during the off season. Um, so we're, we're going to get some stuff up there that should be really interesting to people who like this podcast. That's right. And uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're getting a little bit more active with that, we're putting up a little more content. We've been a little reluctant to do that because we hate all these podcasts that just, you know, put your news feed through the ringer with... Well, we hate anything that puts your news feed through the ringer. Yeah, so we've been trying to avoid doing that, but we are realising that we want to, we you know, give you a little bit of content and let you know some things that are interesting to us. So we're going to try and do a little bit more of that over the next few months as we move forward into Season 3. We're going to be back in October. We're going to release a Halloween episode. We haven't quite decided which horror film we're going to do. If you have any ideas or you'd like to hear one, by all means, get in touch with us and let us know. I feel like uh, our annual Halloween episode is... uh it's got as much cachet as the, the annual Simpsons Treehouse of Horror Halloween <laughs> episode now, and I, I feel like people will keep coming back for that. <laughs> of course they will. Thank you, Sue Russell, for giving us your interview and for being a part of this. That's just wonderfully generous of you, and uh, your, your input was so valuable. And check out the book uh, Lethal Intent about this case that she has written. Yeah, and we'll post a link to the uh, Washington Post article that she wrote about her reaction to the film, which is really fascinating. Uh, that's it from us. You guys have a lovely life. We'll be back very, very shortly, and by all means, get in touch with us. Don't be strangers. See you later. I just want to live, Lee. I just want a normal, happy life. I don't know why he did this. Because I love you. Because I love you. And I, and I never wanted to lose you, that's all. I love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind. And I'd never let you down, all right? Because it was me. It was only me.